Hi, I'm Jay Velez Mitchell from JaneUnchained.com, and I am with So Flow Vegans. Welcome back to the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. This is the first episode of our new season, and we are so excited for all of the guests that we're going to be you know, putting out to you guys over the next couple of weeks, so keep checking in. This episode, we have Jane Velez Mitchell, who is the founder of the Jane Unchained Network joining us to talk about how she became vegan, her journey through broadcasting, and then eventually how the Jane Unchained Network came to pass. So it was a great conversation and I can't wait for you to hear the whole episode. And then after you're finished, we want to invite you to go to SoFloVegans.com to check out what we're all about. We're not just a podcast, we're a community that is dedicated to making South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. And that's not just for us in South Florida, that's for everybody to come and just have a little piece of paradise. And as a new feature in season five, at the end of every episode, we're going to have a spotlight of some amazing person, business, event happening in South Florida that you get to check out. So with that being said, enjoy our episode with Jane Velez Mitchell. You are listening to the SoFlo Vegans Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the SoFlo Vegans Podcast. And today our guest is none other than Jane Velez Mitchell, who is the founder of the Jane Unchained Network. Now, I've wanted to have Jane on our podcast for a long time because I'm extremely passionate about media production and broadcasting and podcasting, obviously, and to see what she's doing in the community is truly inspiring. So to have you right here to pick your brain to find out how you got started and you know, how you got to the point where you're, you know, focusing on veganism. It's truly a pleasure. So thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So we have a little tradition here at SoFlo Vegans. Our first question is always, what is your vegan origin story? How did it all get started for Jane Velez Mitchell? Well, uh, my mom, uh, who lived to 99 and a half, so I always give her 100, was born in 1916 in the beautiful island of Vieques, which is part of Puerto Rico. It's an island off the coast of Puerto Rico, but it's part of the Puerto Rican Commonwealth. And she had a pet pig. She thought she had a companion animal, uh, a, a friend, someone she loved. She was very young. She came home from school, and the pig had been slaughtered. She fainted. And when she woke up, she was disgusted and shunned meat. So she came to New York uh, by herself on a boat at the age of 12, formed a very successful dance troupe called Anita Velez Dancers. And they toured um, hotels from the Caribbean, um, America, United States, and Canada. She met my dad, who was Irish-American, <clears throat> who was an advertising executive. He was a big meat eater when he met her, but he converted as well. So... We were pescatarians pretty much growing up. Um, we thought of ourselves as kind of vegetarians. 
I mean, this is in the early 60s. This is not a time when the, the word vegan was floating around. But my mother was very advanced. She was one of the first hyphenates. She kept her name and added my dad's name. So she was Anita Velez Mitchell. She was doing yoga in the 40s when nobody knew what the heck yoga was. So she was a very avant-garde person uh, who was very into the arts, being a dancer. And then she became a writer, director, um, just uh, really ahead of her time is what I'd have to say. So as I got older, um, became a journalist, went to New York University. When I graduated, I started working in news, um, went around the country, Fort Myers, Florida, Minneapolis, Philadelphia. Then I came back to my hometown, New York. I was uh, raised in Midtown Manhattan, ended up working at WCBS TV. And <clears throat> along that journey, I started seeing the horrors uh, here and there of what we did to animals in the laboratory was the first time I saw it uh, when I was in Philly, actually, these horrible head injury experiments on primates that, I mean, it was like a punch to the gut. I didn't know what I could do about it, uh, but I knew there was something morally wrong there and I had to address it eventually, but I didn't really see a way to do it at that time. Uh, and that's why I'm kind of patient with people sometimes when they're uh, saying, well, what can I do? What can I eat? Because it's not really a logical thing. It's really more of a fear of going up against the system. And, um, so when I was back in New York, I spent eight years at WCBS as a reporter and weekend anchor. And then I got a job as a weekday anchor in LA and I was working at Paramount studios. We had a studio, um, on the Paramount lot. And in walks Howard Lyman, the fourth generation cattle rancher who had made a pact with God when he get, got very ill. And he said, God, if you get me out of the surgery alive, I will reveal the horrors of animal agriculture. And he went on Oprah and uh, <clears throat> it was a famous, you know, really in the history of television, it's a famous incident where he revealed the horrors. And she said, that just stopped me cold from eating another burger. I think that was the quote. Cattleman sued her. She ended up winning that suit, but it turned Howard Lyman, this cattle rancher turned vegan activist known as the mad cowboy into a bit of a celebrity. And uh, he was doing a tour. And so I interviewed him. And then afterwards, he and his publicist, Mar Nealon, came up to my cubicle where I worked, my desk, and they said, we hear you're a vegetarian. I said, yes. And they said, do you eat dairy? And I kind of hung my head because he had just described the horrors of the dairy industry, the boy calves being ripped, uh, you know, put in veal crates, shot, left on dead piles, the, the mothers grieving, chasing after their babies, just the whole horror of it. And so I kind of hung my head and I said, yes. And they pointed their finger right at my nose and they said, liquid meat. And that was the moment I went vegan. Now, if they had been oh so very polite and said, well, you know, you really should consider giving up dairy because it's um, it's really not what you should. I might not have gotten it. I might not have heard their message. They confronted me and they called me out because I was, you know, thinking of myself as an animal lover and blah, blah, blah. But I was contributing mightily to the oppression and suffering of animals by that choice of eating dairy products. And so I thank them every time I run into either one of them. Mar Nealon is a very fierce activist. Nobody's fool. I always thank her and I always thank Howard Lyman. So from that point on, I realized I'm 
uh, a a vegan. It took me a month to really change my taste buds. Um, they accidentally put uh, Parmesan cheese in my salad about a month later, and I spat it out. It was tasted awful. Now I used to love Parmesan cheese. So there's a reason why rehab is at least 28 days. It takes 28 days at least, sometimes a lot more, to change a behavior pattern and change your taste buds and change your your habits. So give yourself at least 28 days. You may not love soy milk the first time you taste it or cashew milk, but within t 28 days, it'll taste absolutely normal. It takes a while. And you brought up some great points and start to touch into your broadcasting background. So that's where I want to go right now. What, what was that spark that made you want to go in that direction in the first place? Well, as I mentioned, my mother was in the theater and so very theatrical. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of very fun characters. I don't know if you ever saw the Woody Allen movie, Broadway, Danny Rose, but I actually grew up right near the Carnegie Deli. And when I saw that film, I was like, oh, this is like my upbringing. Cause it's a bunch of characters who were from show business, you know, who had various claims to fame. Like one guy was a pool shark whose claim to fame was that he beat Fats Domino once in a, I don't know. They all had their stories, right? And so there were a lot of characters floating around, but it was a showbiz kind of family. And my dad was in advertising, which was print advertising, which um, was very much about writing, writing ads. And I actually worked for him in the summertime sometimes. Uh, so I kind of combined those. When I originally was thinking about journalism, I was thinking about being a syndicated columnist because I thought I would just sit there and write my opinions all day. And how fun is that? And then I actually got interviewed a couple of times and uh, in the course of being interviewed, I realized uh, I was interviewed on television for a protest that I was holding at one point and for a couple of other things that were happening. I ended up just being on camera, being interviewed by TV journalists. And I thought to myself, hey, I kind of got the bug. But I also thought like some of those questions were pretty dumb. I could do a better job than that. So <laughs> when it came time to signing up, uh, at NYU, I just wrote, I saw that they had a checklist. You could do print journalism or you could do broadcast journalism. And I just checked off broadcast journalism. And um, here's a funny story. So a friend of mine and I who were both at NYU, I grew up on 57th and 7th, right across from Carnegie Hall. And up the block was the CBS Broadcast Center. Well, my friend said, you know, we could go in. This is in 1970 three or four, when I graduated high school and was in college, he said, you know, we could go in there. We both wanted to be journalists. He said, we could just go in there and look around. I said, how? He said, just pretend, we'll pretend we're delivering coffee. So we would pick up some coffee from the diner, walk in and say coffee delivery and walk right through the gates and spend all day at CBS. And this is the same building where I later ended up working. And, um, this is back in the day where you literally could do that now, you know, forget about it. But there was li very little security and people were always delivering food. So we just said delivery and we walk right through. I would even go into the studios when they were live on a national broadcast and stand behind the camera and watch the broadcast. And finally, this one guy, this very old crusty guy, he goes, who are you? Why are you here? And I said, oh, I'm studying to be a journalist. And he said, get out while you can. <laughs> 
I guess you didn't take his uh, take his advice. No, I thought it was all very glamorous and exciting. So it sounds like you had a, a good community around you that supported what you were you were looking to do, and you also had that that drive, that passion that a lot of um, successful entrepreneurs have. So, and then you mentioned NYU. So, what other things influenced your decision? to go in the direction that you went. Well, I want to say this story, which I don't tell very often because it's kind of weird, <laughs> but it happens to be the case. Um, unfortunately, I was stalked for six years oh. from like my last year and a half in high school all the way through college. Um, basically what happened, this is the 70s, you know, it was a crazy time, say no more. I went to a party at Columbia University and there was this guy, I thought he was very cool hippie, he was much older. And we went out a couple of times, you know, I went to a Yes concert with him. I, um, uh, we never did, you know, we never went all the way at all. But uh, I realized he was kind of crazy pretty quickly. And meanwhile, he knew where I went to school, where I lived, and, and would follow me around, stalk me for six years. I actually took my junior year out of the country at Universidad de las Americas in Puebla, Mexico, uh, to get away. And when I came back, no, he was still there. So the last year, by the way, I'm a recovering alcoholic with 25 years of sobriety. Okay. And um, so that's a really important part of my story. And I was partying. I mean, it was a party time. I guess it always is a party time for teenagers. But you know, for me, it was it was a it was a party time. And I might I had a wild party for my twenty first birthday. And then I woke up the next day and I looked in the mirror and I had that moment of clarity, like, oh my god, you know, you, you're being stalked, which was very horribly um, anxiety producing. You are not taking your schoolwork seriously. You just came back from an infamous party school in Mexico. Um, get it together. You know, uh, he'd actually threatened me several times. And I thought, you know, this is a dangerous situation. My parents didn't really understand, I don't think. And, uh, you know, I literally cleaned up my act and became the most, like, serious, determined student in my last year. And I uh, did a demo reel, which I memorized the entire script. And I went to the library and I cut out things that I was going to talk about. And I pasted them on a green board behind me. And I got this guy to lend me his camera. And I only had one take. He would only let me do one or two takes. So I had to read the whole thing in one take. And um, then I did a story. I used to go to this place uh, near NYU where this older guy who used to work for something, I don't know what, some video thing, uh, he had a, um, he had some kind of, it wasn't a nonprofit, but it was like sort of a, it was a place, an experimental place where people, young people could do videos. And so uh, he helped me with his cameras get my demo reel together. And um, I remember he said, <clears throat> I said, I need to do a report. And he said, uh, okay. I said, I need a report for my demo reel. And I said, what should I do it on? He goes, I don't care. Go downstairs and do it on the rise, rising price of flowers for all I care. Because there was a flower shop downstairs. So that's exactly what I did. I went downstairs and I said, a rose at any price would smell as sweet. And I did all sorts of quotes <laughs> from uh, various poems 
a rose is a rose is a rose, even though it might cost more, whatever. I mean, I did some fun stuff and, uh, that was my report. Literally. I went downstairs to the flower shop and that was the report I used. So then my dad was in advertising, um, helped me out by, um, placing an ad in broadcasting magazine. And, uh, I play, I placed an ad and I said, money's no object. Um, uh, I mean, I said a couple of things that were very self-flattering and we created an ad. My dad was in advertising, so we made an ad. And, um, so I got a job. I got two job offers and I took the one in Fort Myers, Florida. And, um, you know, what I say to kids when I talk to them is if somebody told you that they'd kill you. If you didn't get a job immediately upon graduation, how would you behave differently? Mm -hmm. Because honestly, the fact that this creep was stalking me, motivated me for self-preservation reasons. I knew my parents would never let me leave home without having a job, mm -hmm. you know, a career. And um, I, I felt like it was a life or death matter. Wow. So I did everything it took. I mean, I put together a resume. I um, placed the ad, I, you know, I, I did everything I could possibly think of. And that's what I tell anybody who wants to get anywhere is just do the next indicated thing, do everything you can possibly do and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Because usually, even though you may be bashing your head against the wall, you'll break through. And in fact, uh, you know, um, I was, I think I was the only person in my graduating class to get an on-camera job right upon graduation. Oh, wow. And that's not, that's not a compliment to me. It's a compliment to what the power of fear <laughs> will do when you really think that, oh my God, I got to get out of town. There's this nut following me around. So now you're in Fort Myers and, you know, coming from New York, although there's a joke, you know, the most of 75% of Florida people from New York. What what um what was your experience like in Florida compared to where you're coming from? I love Fort Myers. In fact, I said I have to get out of here because it's so much fun that I will never leave if I don't get out of here. So I sold my car to force myself out. Wow. Uh, but I had an MG midget. Okay. So when I started my job, first of all, I didn't know how to drive. I was born and raised in Manhattan and I never drove. I took a driver's test and I begged the man who was giving me the test, please, with tears in my eyes, my job depends on having a license, please. I couldn't parallel park to save my life. I basically didn't know how to drive. I, of course, I go down there being a teenager, basically a glorified teenager. My dad gave me enough money for a down payment. I got an MG midget, sparkle red, and they literally pushed it off the lot because I had no idea how to drive a stick shift. I proceeded to pretty much destroy that car because I didn't know you needed to put oil. I thought you just need to put gas. Uh -huh. So I would always, okay, we were all told by the news director to live in the same apartment complex. I'll never forget it. The Richardson Arms. And um, he happened to be um, the news director, a very nice person, but a born again Christian, very, very conservative and straight laced. Well, he said, I want you all in the same place near work. So when the big story hits, we can mobilize. <laughs> well, the big story never hit, little old Fort Myers. <laughs> But the weekends at the Richardson Arms were pretty, pretty wild. Let's just leave it at that. Oh, wow. Um, so having destroyed my car, I would always hitchhike to work. Yeah. 
or hitch a ride from somebody who lived at the Richardson Arms. So, of course, the woman at the front desk of the TV station thought I was a you-know-what because one morning I'd be <laughs> hopping off the back of a motorcycle the next day. But I wasn't. But the appearance was that I was always hitching a ride to work because I couldn't – My car, I didn't know how to drive pretty much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was – it was really, but if you think, but I had a great time in Fort Myers. I would, I, I did eventually learn to drive and I would take uh, my car to uh, Alligator Alley and shoot over to Fort Lauderdale where there was a very fun scene there. I mean, we're talking 1977, 78. Mm-hmm. So eventually I said, I got to get out of here. So I sent my tape out to some agent in New York and she sent it out to somebody and this guy called me over the phone and offered me a job in Minneapolis. And I had never even uttered or thought the word Minneapolis in my life. It was just like a big giant question mark. And I thought it was a crank phone call. I said, who is this? Cut it out. So he offered me a job, but that at the time it was a much larger market than many, Fort Myers was a very small town at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I did the first live video ever, the first live shot, I'll never forget it. From from WBBH, the news director came up to me and said, you know what, you're gonna go down to the courthouse and they're gonna stick something in your ear and you're gonna talk at the same time as the show's on. And I'm like, what? <laughs> wow, when was this? It was about 1977. Wow, that's cool. And uh, yeah, we were. it was our live, our live debut. And um, you know what I mean, a remote live. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and so anyway, I got the job in Minneapolis and I literally, I, I literally was kind of a teenager. I was, you know, at this point, maybe whatever, 24. I, I wasn't the most mature person. Uh, I see some of the kids today who are 19 and I mean, I had my mature aspects, but I was also very, um, you know, I wanted to have fun. Uh, so... I packed up all my meager belongings and I got on a plane and I just landed in Fort Myers, I mean, landed in Minneapolis to a complete and utter culture shock like I have never experienced before or since. Now, mind you, I did not have any closed toe shoes. I wore high heel flip flops. I had, it was the seventies. I had short skirts. I had, I didn't own a coat. It was 45 degrees below zero with the wind chill when I arrived. Wow. <laughs> so it was it was rough. It was rough. So how long did you how long did you stay in Minneapolis? Two years. It, Too long. <laughs> Too long years. The people of Minneapolis are wonderful. They're very nice. It's very cold. So I want to fast forward a little bit and and for you to talk about your experience working with CNN and and Nancy Grace. What was that? Oh, like? yeah. Well, Flash, I'll just jump forward because I, you know, you would be like, get me out of this interview. This is going on too long. So I worked in Minneapolis then I got a job in Philadelphia. I worked there for a year and a half. Then I got a job in New York, which was my hometown. That was my whole goal is to get back to New York. So I worked there for eight years. I was a reporter and weekend anchor. And then I got a chance to go to L.A., where I was a weekday anchor at Paramount Studios with KCAL, and I worked there for 12 years. Then that wrapped. I mean, management changes. I had a great run. 12 years is a long time. 
And I ended up going uh, and uh, a friend of mine who was a, a reporter and lawyer at another station, Harvey Levin, had just started this show called Celebrity Justice. It's actually the precursor to TMZ. Mm-hmm. And he said, you want to, you know, I'm looking for reporters. And I was so tired of local news at that point. I was like, yes, let me do it. So I um, did the show. I ended up uh, covering the Michael Jackson child molestation trial in Santa Maria, California, which was a global Mm. Uh, global global coverage. People from around the world, news media from around the world, and I ended up on Larry King Live quite a few times. And then I, I was a reporter for Nancy Grace nightly from outside the courthouse. And then after that, uh, trial ended with an acquittal on all counts, and the show ended pretty much at the same time. And so I was doing fill-in, and uh, Nancy Grace asked, her team asked me to fill in for her when she went on vacation. And um, kind of a funny story, I was, after the show ended, and uh, at this point, I also came out as gay. That's another little thing I just dropped down, just a a little, (laughs) let's drop that into the mix. Anyway, I was with my girlfriend at the time uh, in Bora Bora, decided I needed a vacation after that show, and literally on a catamaran, about to leave the shore as this man from the hotel comes running up, handing me a letter. (laughs) He literally gets his pants wet, handing me this letter. And I was like, what? And I look at the letter and it says, uh, CNN needs to talk to you. And the first thing I thought was, remember after Michael Jackson was acquitted, he kind of disappeared. And remember he eventually turned up in Ireland. But people, there was a whole thing of where is he, where is he? Mm -hmm. And at one point, Marlon Brando had said to um, Michael Jackson that he could use his island, I believe it was Tetiaroa, which was right near where we were at. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the first thing I thought was, oh, no, they want me to go to Tetiaroa. They've heard (laughs) to check out whether he's there. And I thought, oh, my God. But, no, they asked, they were just calling to find out if I wanted to fill in for Nancy Grace. And I said, absolutely. So after doing that for um, a while, you know, um, what happened was Glenn Beck, who had the show prior to Nancy, purportedly, allegedly, what I heard was he stormed off the set one night, which is not what you want to do. And uh, they wanted to replace him immediately. So they called me, and um, I was sitting right here where I live, and, I was having a cup of coffee and they said, do you want a job? I was like, yes. They said, okay, we can call it issues with Jane Velez Mitchell. And I said, great, because I've got a lot of issues. <laughs> and I went to New York. I literally, being an animal activist, the first thing I did was go to the vet and make sure my dogs were certified to fly. Because they said, you're going to go to New York this weekend. And it was Friday. So I literally goes, do the show from LA today. or to- Yeah, today and tomorrow you can go to New York. I literally packed up a few things and my dogs and I flew to New York and I was there for seven years. So now, now we're at that point where we see the convergence of your animal activism and your background in broadcast journalism. So what, how did that turn into the Jane Unchained network? Well, what happened was when I was at Celebrity Justice, Harvey Levin would have and it was an ungodly morning hour, like 6.45 a.m. in Glendale, when I live in pretty much Venice, California. You had to have two, two story ideas. And he would say, where's the celebrity? Where's the justice? And um, it's kind of, it was kind of a precursor in real life to what he does on the TMZ show now, where he stands. It was exactly like that. 
And so it was very hard to get celebrities because we were a tabloid show. They didn't want anything to do with us. They'd hang up on us and literally run from us down the street. Mm-hmm. I chased a few of them. And um, so it occurred to me that I was a burgeoning animal activist at the time and a vegan that if I and I had gone to PETA galas and things that of that nature, I said, you know, if I if I asked PETA for some celebrities with their causes, I could have celebrity and the cause is justice. That's exactly what I did. I worked very closely with PETA. We did numerous stories, numerous, numerous, numerous stories on um, animal rights at Celebrity Justice. And in fact, we won two Genesis Awards. Mm-hmm. So from the Humane Society. So um, that gave me the idea that, yeah, you can use your uh your profession, whatever it is. I don't care if you're a pianist, if you're a plumber, you can use whatever your chosen field is to help animals. So then when I got the job at uh, CNN Headline News, I asked, I said, would you mind if I did a little animal segment once a week? And they thought about it and they said, no, sounds fine. Maybe they thought it was going to be pet adoptions. We started with hardcore animal activism. For six years, pretty much every Friday, I did like a four-minute segment on, we were showing pig gestation crates, the horrors of factory farming, laboratory issues. Um, It was, I I will always be grateful to CNN for allowing me to do that. They did not stop me. Mm -hmm. And um, we had all the big leaders in animal activism on, you know, uh, at the time, Nathan Runkle, now Milo Runkle, and many people from uh, all the different groups. And- People like Josh Tetrick, who was just starting Just Mayo, mm. uh, was on. And so uh, I realized that, wow, I was getting these people on, you know, who were animal activists. It was it was a blessing. I will always be grateful uh, for having had that opportunity. So when the show wrapped in 2000, late 2014, I left on very good terms. I, I said I had a good run, you know, and on to the next thing. And I I said, do you mind if I take my social media, which is Facebook? They had built up a whole Facebook for me, Instagram, et cetera. Was it Instagram or just Twitter? I don't, uh, I can't remember exactly which ones, but yeah, definitely Facebook and and Twitter. So they said, sure. So um, I realized with my girlfriend at the time, who's still a good friend, Donna, I said, Donna, now we can go to animal rights protests. Cause when you're a reporter, you can't go to animal rights protests unless you're covering them, Mm -hmm. which, mainstream media pretty much never does hardly ever so she said yeah jane you're unchained so i said oh yeah jane unchained i said that has a fun ring so when i started covering the protests uh, i noticed immediately there was a missing component um there were people going to tremendous lengths to protest sometimes barely wearing any clothes in very cold weather people are trying to get indoors it was cold in new york city And nobody's documenting it. And I said, oh, bingo, this is what I can do. Uh, And somebody at CNN, a top executive, before I left, I asked to meet with her. She's one of the top people. And she said, your passion is clearly animals. Why don't you do that exclusively? That's your niche. That's almost a direct quote. So I felt like that inspired me also. Like, okay, let me just do this full time. And I'll never forget one of the first protests we covered was in Brooklyn outside the Staples Center. Um, where my good friend, Cynthia King, had brought something like 200 of her dance students who were budding activists as well. There were a large contingent of people protesting against Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And I'll never forget, it was nine degrees. You may have noticed I don't like cold weather. (laughs) It was nine degrees. My GoPro camera was shaking. And I was like, is this really worth it? And I thought, yes, these animals are suffering. It's worth it. 
so I documented that news report. And, you know, not because of me, because of PETA, because of the work of primarily PETA, but a lot of different organizations. Look, it wasn't a wasted cause. Look, Ringling Brothers does not exist anymore. So for those activists who feel sometimes that, am I making a difference? Is it worth it? I'm so exhausted. I'm burnt out. Yes, it does. Every single vegan, please become an activist. Please use the best tool you have, which is your phone. Your phone has cameras now that are equivalent to movie cameras a decade ago. You can do anything with your phone and put it on social media. That's how we're changing the world. You mentioned Tabitha, Tabitha Brown. Tabitha with her um, coconut uh, carrot bacon, (laughs) carrot bacon video, 12 million views. Now she's got a show with Ellen. (laughs) I mean, there's a perfect example of one person doing one video about one dish having a huge impact. So you mentioned you mentioned being an activist and you brought up Tabitha Brown and using your phone. So when I first went vegan, I was thinking activists. I was thinking about what you see in the movies, people throwing paint on people wearing fur. So what are some of the different ways that people can be an activist in this community? Thanks, well, yeah. I think the sky's the limit. Um, I think you find out what you're good at. Uh, so I've been in media my whole life. So I'm using social media to do journalism. And uh, now in COVID we have anchors. Well, just to get to the end of that story, flash forward, uh, Facebook live came around. And by that time I had moved to LA and I realized, wow, cause I was always a live reporter pretty much on my whole career. I was always alive. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is great. I don't have to edit all these, spend all these hours editing. I could just go live. And then I immediately very soon realized, you know, there's so much happening. It's such a global movement. It's exploding. Mm-hmm. The animal rights movement was exploding. Um, starting around the time that I started Jane Unchained 2015 And I said, we need everybody doing this. So now we have 70 volunteer contributors around the world going live. And we have like more than a dozen anchors who do their shows. They're they're a a weekly show. And so it's a team effort. It's not me alone. We have an incredible team of volunteers and we have a great, very tiny group of people who are actual, you know, they work on it, but, um, mostly it's a volunteer effort. And, um, so like that, uh, and we try to encourage everybody, you know, yeah, I'd like Jane Unchained to grow, but more than that, I'd like to get the world plant-based. I mean, frankly, after 38 years of working fiendishly in broadcast television where you don't even go out to lunch, mm. I'd like to be sitting on the beach reading a trashy novel and eating some vegan bonbons. But but this is this needs to be done. So every day I wake up and, you know, 12, 12 hours a day just working on this. And we're a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. So there's a lot of paperwork involved, too, which I do. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're using the power of social media. If you're a singer, write a song. If you're uh, a lawyer, Join a group like Animal Legal Defense Fund or one of these other organizations, Non-Human Rights Project. Lend your expertise to these organizations that are fighting in court for animal rights. If you're, um, 
you name it. I don't care what your what your profession is. And here's another thing we're doing uh, is we are really trying to create a veganomy and unite all vegans. So we just started something called plantbasedneighbor.com, which is in beta testing, but it will very soon be an app. But we want to work out all the kinks before we make it an official app. So I'm urging every vegan to sign up to Plant Based Neighbor. You can find other vegans who live in your neighborhood. And you can also um, put your profession up so that if you're, let's say, just for example, a massage therapist and you're vegan, frankly, if I'm going to get massaged, I want to be massaged by a vegan. I don't want to have some meat eater breathing down my neck. Okay. So ditto for hairdresser for a plumber, I would rather give my money to a vegan. So since a lot of that is geographically determined, you are not going to pick a hairdresser who's hundred miles away. Having these people in your neighborhood is really important and it builds a sense of community. And also during this time of COVID, you won't feel so alone. So one of our guys, Kenziah Rubens, who lives in downtown LA is our, um, Instagram editor. I said, Kenziah, sign up for Plant-Based Neighbor. He said, I don't think so, Jane. I live in downtown LA. There won't be anybody. I said, just do it. <laughs> Guess what? 162 people in his zip code. Whoa. He found 162. He called me up. He goes, oh, my God, Jane, I can't believe this. There's 162 people in my zip code. I said, yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Wow. So, and that's in beta. That's amazing. Yeah. So please sign up for plant-based neighbor. And it's, you know, some people have called me back. Well, it should do this. It should do that. First, we're getting the, the technology down. And then we're going to be able to add on all these layers. Like, for example, when, whenever COVID is, you know, a part of our past, mm -hmm. and it could be a long time. Uh, but whenever, whenever it is, wouldn't we like to organize vegan block, block parties? Wouldn't we like to organize vegan rideshares to VegFest? Um, there are so many things we can do once we have this um, infrastructure in place and to create the veganomy. And we're going to also have giveaways for those who've signed up as we go along. There's going to be some exciting giveaways. So it's just a fun way to connect with the people in your neighborhood. And you really feel like I'm sure you have this experience of a vegan family. It really it really expands that notion that we're not alone. Even if the people around us are grilling dead flesh, we've got our compadres, you know, around. And and that's one of the things I love about the vegan community is like, there's not one type of vegan. We have such a diversity of vegans within the community. And, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, not always seen by the outside. Um, so you've had um, been covering the vegan community for a while now. What are some of the trends or some things that you've seen that um, points to growth, let's say, within the last three years? Well, I think the Beyond Meat initial public offering, which was the most successful IPO since the 2008 financial crisis, was a major breakthrough for our movement. I noticed it just with our neighbors. My neighbors around here, just like many of us, we got the eye rolls and the it's a choice and all of that. But then once money entered the equation, because our society values money almost above all else, which is the big problem, 
But once it started making money, I noticed that there was a new respect. And people would come up to me, that beyond meat, huh? Wow. Wow. Hmm. And um, so then they started trying it. Isn't that not, isn't that interesting? Is that when it started to make money, people started trying it. And because Beyond Meat existed prior to the IPO, I mean, it's based here in El Segundo. And actually, Jane Unchained did a great uh, tour with Ethan Brown, uh, the uh, founder of the facility. And um, so it's always been it's been out there for quite a few years. But when it went public, wow, I, I felt a new respect, a new legitimacy. And so I think that was a big, big turning point. And I also think this COVID crisis is a huge turning point for our movement. You know, uh, advertiser based media generally does not want to talk about the horrors of animal agriculture. And uh, they pretty much pretend it doesn't exist even now. Well, they've been forced to talk about what they call meat packing plants, which sounds like somebody putting a few steaks in a suitcase to go on vacation. Uh, they don't say the word slaughterhouse, mm -hmm. but uh, they've been forced to talk about it because slaughterhouses, along with nursing homes and prisons, are some of the uh, hotspots, the main hotspots of COVID-19. And slaughterhouse workers are getting sick and they are dying. Mm -hmm. So they're covering it from a uh, workers' rights perspective and also because the Trump administration declared slaughterhouses critical infrastructure under the Defense Protection Act, thereby robbing a lot of these workers who are amongst the poorest uh, and the the lowest socioeconomic group of any you know, any right to, the, the rights to sue that they might otherwise have by declaring them essential workers. Basically, it's in a large sense a death march to go into these slaughterhouses. Something like 26,000 uh, slaughterhouse workers or those connected to slaughterhouses have gotten sick and 95 at least people tied to slaughterhouses have died. Wow. And so you know, it's now for the liberal media, something they're looking at from a workers' rights perspective, but mostly to uh, call out the Trump administration. However, um, they are not looking at it from a perspective of um, the environmental wreckage that animal agriculture uh, causes and obviously the horrific, horrific suffering to animals and also the psychological, emotional and spiritual devastation of these poor people who are forced to go in there and kill every day, day after day, they get alcoholism, drug addiction, depression, suicide. I mean, it is the job nobody wants. Mm. So anybody now who is eating a chicken wing or a slice of bacon or a meat burger, guess what? You're, you're co-signing the possible death of a human being too. Slaughterhouses are also slaughterhouses for people. And I know at the beginning of the year, it was there was a lot more attention on it, but and you touched on it a little bit, in terms of the link between the environment, climate change, and animal agriculture, do you do you see more organizations creating that correlation, or do you still see people with their head in the sand, um, thinking that there isn't a link, and it's more about fossil fuels and and other um, contributing factors? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, by the way, we're involved with the Boycott Meat Coalition. And every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Jane Unchained's Facebook, 
we do a boycott meet roundtable with uh, workers' rights advocates in Iowa who are speaking up for these workers who are being hospitalized and dying. So I think that very much um, flies in the face of what some people want to believe, a lie that they tell themselves that, oh, animal rights activists only care about animals. No, we care about people too. We want to eliminate human world hunger, which only exists because of animal agriculture. We could live in a world of natural abundance where everybody has all the food they want. We are focusing on the least efficient food source, animals who obviously eat so much more than they produce as food. 70% or more of all soy is fed to farm animals. A huge percentage of the corn and other staples are fed to animals who then don't produce that much food. So if we just fed that food directly to humans, we could end world hunger and we could also lower the price of food because scarcity creates increases in price. Anybody who thinks about it for more than five seconds would know this, but denial is a very powerful thing. As for the environmental movement, I want to give a shout out to Joaquin Phoenix for calling them out in a very strategic way during the awards ceremony this past year, the SAG Awards, the Golden Globes, mm -hmm. and even the Oscars, and um, basically saying to the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards, thank you for being plant-based because this acknowledges the devastating impact that um, animal agriculture has on our environment. I think that now there's no excuse for any environmental or conservation group to ever serve meat. I urge everyone, and the first thing I ask if I'm invited to one of these environmental or conservation uh, conservation uh, events is, are you serving dead animals or dairy, or is this plant-based? We have to put pressure on these groups to walk the walk. It's absurd. Conservation, I mean, habitat destruction for cattle grazing land is the primary reason why we're experiencing uh, habitat and uh, wildlife that that animals are, are being driven to extinction because they don't have anywhere to live because we've destroyed it. Since the start of the year, we've destroyed a, a part of the Amazon that's equivalent to more than 20 Manhattans wow. for cattle grazing, for cattle grazing. So these hypocrites who um, say they're environmentalists, but they're eating animals, you are the problem. And, you know, it reminds me of addiction because in 12-step there's, there's a saying, we thought it was the solution, but it was the problem. We thought alcohol was our solution after a bad day of work or after uh, after a good day at work. <laughs> after any any day at work, we thought it was the solution, but it was actually the problem. And it's the same thing with meat and dairy. We think it's a solution. So these people who want to end world hunger and feed the hungry, they're going to go and feed meat to people who are hungry right now. That's why I'm so thrilled to be working with Maggie Baird. You know, our show, New Day, New Chef on Amazon Prime. Uh, we have the first season, which is fantastic, top vegan chefs cooking. Now we have a special edition, Support and Feed. So you can put in New Day, New Chef, because it's a new day, you can be a new chef, or you can put Support and Feed to Support and Feed. Maggie Baird, who happens to be Billie Eilish's and Phineas's mom, is a committed vegan, as is Billie Eilish and Phineas, and she's created this system where you um, donate to support and feed support and feed gives it to the vegan restaurants. The vegan restaurants make this incredible food and then support and feed delivers it to children's charities, oh, wow. to senior centers and all sorts of people who are really struggling right now. But the frustration that the so-called 
you know, hunger groups are feeding meat to people who are hungry. I personally know this is happening because I have a friend who actually was my rollerblading teacher 28 years ago who helped me get sober uh, because I'd always show up hungover for my rollerblading classes. And I'd say, I need a cup of coffee before we do this. Anyway, she helped me get sober. Well, now she's an elderly person and she is a vegan and she cannot get any group to feed her vegan food. And she calls me and says, Jane, they're, they're bringing me pastrami sandwiches and I can't eat it. I said, well, we, I work with one of our contributors, Kim Delgado, who um, found some vegan food and regularly delivers it to her. But it's frustrating because feeding cancer-causing food, processed meat is cancer-causing officially from the World Health Organization. Um, food that's going to increase your chance of getting diabetes or worsen your heart disease. Those are the underlying health conditions that make you more likely to get very ill and die from COVID-19. It's crazy to be feeding meat and dairy to people who are struggling during COVID-19. It's just going to make them sicker and more likely to succumb. So um, in any case, uh, I don't even remember what, don't get me started. Oh yeah, you, you asked about the environmental groups. Okay, so let me say this. I've butted, head with the, I've butted heads with a few environmental groups. I can tell you that, yes, um, I did lose my temper on a couple of occasions. Uh, Jane Fonda told me to, sh she said, you be quiet. That's a direct quote. And it even got written up, you know, Jane Fonda shouts down vegan activists um, at one of these climate events because they were not talking about animal agriculture's impact on climate change. They were talking about the amorphous idea of fossil fuels. Now, there's a lot of young kids there. I bet you if you ask them to really define fossil fuels, they'd be hard pressed to do it a lot. So what the industry doesn't mind you doing is railing against fossil fuels because they realize that point A to B is very amorphous. Mm -hmm. What are you gonna do to stop fossil fuels, right? Mm, okay, why less? But there's something very concrete you can do when you want to stop animal agriculture's role in climate change. You can stop eating animals and their byproducts. They're terrified of that. So they don't, they actually encourage the protests against fossil fuels, they being the big industries that have underwritten some of these events. So the truth is that that's why what Joaquin Phoenix did was so powerful because he spoke that same exact message standing right next to Jane Fonda and she didn't tell him to be quiet. Mm -hmm. She sat there in the same red or stood there in the same red coat and red hat and listened. And you know, uh, we're all, we're all a work in progress, myself included. I've got plenty of hypocrisies that I need to deal with just like every other human being. So I'm inviting environmentalists to get it. If you care about people, don't co-sign the death of a slaughterhouse worker. If you care about human world hunger, don't eat animals. If you care about climate change, transition to plant-based, reduce the meat and the dairy, and we'll all be a lot better off for it. So um, I don't know that scolding is the answer. I don't really have the answer for the climate issue. I do feel that the truth is breaking through. And I think that you've got intellectuals like Ezra Klein writing a very, 
very powerful article in Vox recently. You had Jonathan Safran Foer writing an uh, opinion piece in the New York Times recently. So I think they're starting to get that it's kind of like cigarettes. It's icky. And um, it's not something that anybody who's high-minded wants to have anything to do with. And I wanted to take an opportunity to ask you, because I've noticed on your network, you've been addressing it with some of your programming and you've been going in um, a different direction, I've noticed. Um, in terms of social justice, um, what, where, does, where do you stand? Where does the Jane Unchained Network stand in regards to this, this conversation? Well, it's a very good point. Room for improvement. Like until it was pointed out, I may not have been as sensitive to that. Although I consider myself a person of color. I'm Puerto Rican, along with being Irish. And I've got German and Spanish. But I consider myself, I'm very proud to be an earthling. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think that um, unfortunately our administration has encouraged division. And listening to the Mary Trump book, wow, it spells it all out, man the dysfunctional childhood. It's a must listen because then you get it. It's all about low self-esteem. And that's my personal opinion. When I see anybody I've been, I've been discriminated against. I've been, um, talked down to because of my heritage. Um, people have assumed that maybe I grew up in poverty because of my heritage, which is not the case. Um, but I always look at it from the same way. I look at people who wear fur contrarian indicator, low self-esteem. If you need to, to put somebody down here to feel up here, it means you've got a self-esteem problem. And um, <clears throat> I noticed that those who, when I was growing up, I had a very interesting background. I told you about the, the um, uh, showbiz aspect. And my dad had a whole other set of friends who were very highfalutin. My mother would roll her eyes. But, um, you know, there were some... So what you'd call society types. And um, what I noticed were the pretenders were often very standoffish and snobby. But the people who were really secure at being at the top of the ladder were often very nice because they didn't have anything to prove. Mm. They, didn't, they, they weren't socially insecure. So when I see somebody wearing a Rolex or a fur or uh, being a bigot, I think, low self-esteem doesn't feel good about themselves. And this is totally confirmed with the Mary Trump book. Um, and that's really a commentary on them. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let that impact my, uh, feelings of how I feel. Uh, you know, that, that's like, uh, that's a, that's a sick person. That's a sick person. And I don't necessarily have to cure them, but they don't have to wash their they're dirty water on me. Mm -hmm. So that's my personal philosophy. Um, but that being said, social change is super important. We had the Me Too movement where women rose up and we started seeing how women are um, objectified and treated like commodities, especially in Hollywood. I mean, started with, you know, Hollywood to a large degree and media, it's, it's all, I've never, Personally, I'm happy to say, maybe it's because I'm so loud and obnoxious, I've never personally experienced, aside from being stalked as a, as a young woman, but I've never, I've never had a Me Too moment. Uh, but uh, then you have the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, rising up, causing social change. It's super powerful and fantastic. And I see those as coming together as rising up against the patriarchy. Uh, the patriarchy isn't working anymore. 
it's making 0.1% of the world have all the wealth of billions of people. It's a dysfunctional system. So I think that the movement um, reflects this intolerance, obviously, discrimination, police violence, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that specific, but I think on a bigger scale, there's an uprising from everyone who feels disenfranchised to overthrow the patriarchy, mm. however they define that in their minds. And, you know, a very amazing activist, Carol Raphael Davis said to me, if you think about the French Revolution, you probably think of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, mobs. No, it was a very small number of people who I believe stormed the Bastille to overthrow wow. the monarchy. So what we're seeing is, and COVID-19 fits right into this, I think we're seeing a huge shift. That's why as irritating as it can be sometimes, I'm letting nature, I look at, and I didn't get this, this is from Dr. Silas Rao, again, I'm a groupie, he's a genius. When, when COVID happened and I was doing a live interview with him, he said, Jane, isn't it interesting how nature waited till we had all these techniques so we could communicate remotely before shutting us down? Mm -hmm. This is an intervention from nature saying, go to your rooms, humans. You've been terrible. Think about how you've behaved and either come out more evolved or you're finished. Whoa. As soon as I heard that, I was like, wow, he's right. This is an intervention from nature. There's a lot of ways we as a species have been very cruel and we need to clean up our act as a species. And across the board, um, we've, been, um, we've been bad. We're destroying our planet. We're being mean to each other. We're being horrifically, sociopathically, sadistically cruel to animals. All of that has to change. Now, I wanna say one other thing. I know we're probably out of time. But I'm watching this uh, show on Amazon. And yes, of course, I'm watching New Day, New Chef on Amazon Prime <laughs> and Support and Feed on Amazon Prime. But I'm also watching a show about the plague, which wiped out, wiped out half of Europe in the 14th century. And what the professor says, it's brilliant. It changed the entire society. It was a feudalistic society until the plague hit. But what happened was you were either... Uh, um, a peasant, a clergy, or a nobility. And that was a system. And when the plague hit and wiped out uh, half of Europe, then the survivors were like, wait, I don't have to work on this land and work for that person. I could take my um, skills and go next door where this guy is absolutely desperate for workers and I'm gonna charge him. It created the modern, it, it ushered in the modern era. And watching this, I think we are also going to be ushering in a totally new era in human history. Wow. And if we don't get it this time, the next pandemic, which is, of course, all brought on by our abusive animals, will be even deadlier, likely. So that's that's what that's what I see. And I, I see that part of that future has to be transitioning to a plant based world because once we stop oppressing the absolutely most voiceless and powerless amongst us, we will have a different attitude toward each and every one of us. Mm. Yeah, and powerful. And I 
glad you brought up Dr. Salesh Rao and because something he said in our podcast that we did with him um, talked about the HEALNET acronym, which is um, health, the environment, animals, and love. That really resonated with me, and I bring it up in so many of these episodes that I produce because for me, the love aspect, not even just for others or the animals, but for yourself, for myself, is crucial. Self-care, it's putting yourself in a position to be in, in service to others. So, yeah, that's, that's it's powerful stuff. I just wanted to say, getting back to your original question, yes, when we looked at our programming, we said we could be more diverse and we made changes. And I'm very happy to say that a lot of those changes were in effect before, were in place before the Black Lives Matter movement sprung up. Uh, but we accelerated it and made sure that it's a part of our programming. Uh, and it's absolutely important uh, because some of the greatest leaders in our movement are happen to be African-American and because African-Americans are the fastest growing demographic in vegan in the United States. So uh, I think that the last thing I'd like to say about that is we need to take the power back. If you look at where the money that goes into fast food, which is the basically the, the building block, the glue of the meat and dairy industry, without fast food, it would collapse. Just like without schools, the dairy industry is collapsing. Mm, um, but right. if you look at the core of meat and dairy, it is fast food. And if you look at what the fast food companies believe and where they send their money, they are funding the oppressors. Mm. The majority of these fast food companies send money to the, 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 uh, the MAGAs, the Trumps. This is, this is documented. Dr. Milton Mills is the one who has really made a point of this and said, stop funding the people. Don't go to a protest and then go to a, a fast food restaurant and eat because you're funding the opposition. And in a society where money talks to take back that power, imagine if every person of color in the United States boycotted meat and particularly boycotted fast food. Imagine the, imagine the leverage, imagine the power. And we've seen examples of this, you know, in, in the past with the civil rights movement and the boycott. So, so I wanted to leave the audience with some resources, some tips. What are, what are some things that you feel, some resources that would be good for our listeners based on your experience? Yes. Well, you can go to janeunchained.com. And by the way, if you want to be a contributor, uh, you can be a contributor. Um, there's a join the team little tab and, and just sign up and uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, assuming you're a vegan. <laughs> and uh, of course, go to uh, Amazon Prime and watch our, we have Countdown to Year Zero, the documentary. We also have uh, New Day, New Chef and New Day, New Chef Support and Feed. And uh, those are vegan programs. The more people watch, the higher they go in the algorithms and therefore exposed to more pre-vegans. I don't call people non-vegans. I say they're pre-vegans. Um, and it's also on public television stations around the country. And, um, you know, I'm a big supporter of PETA and of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and of Mercy for Animals and of all in defense of animals. All these groups are doing incredible work. 
um, I would support them. You know, sometimes somebody said to me, by the way, and I obviously don't drink, I'm 25 years sober. If every person in the animal rights movement just gave up alcohol and took the money they spent on alcohol and gave it to an animal rights group, mm. we could literally hit the tipping point within months. And so that discretionary income that you might not be spending now um, because you're not out and about as much, hopefully you're you're staying safe, you know, make make a donation, go to support and feed and, and so keep your vegan restaurants open. It's super important that we keep our vegan restaurants open. Um, we don't want to wake up to a world where there's only fast food companies left after this debacle. Um, so I make it a point to order from uh, uh, vegan restaurants, even if I don't exactly need it. Like as Angela Mean said, who's who's shown on our support and feed show, she runs Jack Food Cafe. She said, Vegans, vegan restaurants have been hit particularly hard because vegans can just get a bag of uh, brown rice and a bag of black beans and survive fine for months. And so we have to realize that it's really incumbent upon us to support those vegan restaurants. Make it a point if you can. I mean, obviously people are struggling right now. But if there's discretionary income you're going to use, use it to keep these vegan restaurants open because we have to help them survive this crisis. And do you have any closing remarks for our community? Well, I'll just say, as Charles Dickens said, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Sometimes things look very bleak. Every day I get dozens of emails with terrible stories about animal torture and what they're doing, um, whether it's factory farming or the labs or the dog meat trade, but then we're seeing the world change in real time. As for example, COVID-19, a lot of people are afraid to eat meat because if you think about it, okay, COVID-19 swept through the slaughterhouses. There they are sweating, uh, sweating, sweating, sweating right onto the meat. Do you want to touch that? So people are exploring Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, for example, those products are made without any human hands ever touching them. They are clean products. So I would say just have faith. I mean, I have faith that, as they say, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of justice is long, but it bends toward history. If we all keep just powering forward and doing the next indicated thing and, and every food piece, every dish we make, take a picture of it, put it on Instagram, share out the videos, share this video out, um, you know, work it, work it however you can work it. I do believe that we are on the cusp of hitting the tipping point. The young people are leading the way because they're not as brainwashed. They don't watch the boob tube. They're on social media where you can't be brainwashed as easily. And um, I think that we are, I pray, we are going to achieve what Dr. Rao wants to achieve, which is a vegan world by 2026. Let's do it. So Jackie, we're here to talk about veganism. So first of all, so let's start off and talk about plant chicks. I that was so powerful, like just throw up my mic. Plant Chicks. Tell us about um about your organization. So Plant Chicks, Marcia, my business partner, we empower women to get off fat diets and on a sustainable lifestyle. We have plant-based nutrition programs and fitness programs. They're all combined 
They're all together. And we literally just finished our 30 day challenge. And now we're doing another 30 day challenge or some people are gonna do a seven day challenge. No, but we're constantly always doing different challenges because one of the things when you're on a lifestyle, like our Plantrix lifestyle, it's all plant-based nutrition. We do not recommend vegan junk food. We're saying that's your soul food. That's what you have every once in a while, like 10% of the time. So really all of our diets, like it's hard when people are saying, oh, but I have, this is what I have to do forever. So we're always doing like 14 day challenges, 30 day challenges, doing something just to keep people motivated and inspired. We did a cyber fuel challenge. I don't know if anyone who's listening, if you've heard of Dr. Will Bolsquitz, he's at the Gut Health MD on Instagram. He just released a book, Fiber Fuel. So he's a gastroenterologist, and we did a, a four-week Fiber Fuel challenge with him, and then we rolled over into our Plant Chicks 30-day challenge, and then we're rolling over into another round of the 30-day challenge. But we're also going to be doing a five-day fasting mimicking diet in about three weeks. So, ladies, we invite you. Come join our tribe. We have a private Facebook group. It's called the Plant Chicks Tribe. And not everyone in the Plant Chicks Tribe is plant-based or vegan, but all the recipes we post, everything that's posted has to be plant-based or vegan. So it's a very safe space, a lot of fun. So if you're on, since you were on Facebook, just head over, type in the search engine, Plant Chicks Tribe, and come join us. And it's a bunch of women and we empower one another on this plant tricks journey or on this plant-based journey. And we want to thank Jane Velez Mitchell from the Jane Unchained Network and Jackie Tarleton from the Plant Chicks for joining us on this podcast. As you can see, we've added this new feature in the end. We're going to bring you some information, some maybe some cool additions to the topic that came before it. We'll play with it. Let us know what you think. Contact at soflowvegans.com. We would love to hear from you. Visit our website, soflowvegans.com. Consider becoming a member, supporting our movement. We love you. We appreciate you. And most importantly, we'll see you next time.